Amen. Thank you, ladies. Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me, if you would, please, to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We're going to look this morning at the conversion of the Apostle Paul, looking at the subject matter from rags to riches, Acts chapter 9, and uh, we'll be reading verses 1 through 16. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here am I, here am I Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarshish named Saul, for behold, he's praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you today for the conversion testimony of the Apostle Paul. You took a man that was actually working against you and you arrested his steps and you turned him to you. You saved him. He wasn't even expecting what happened and yet you took the initiative and it was your doing. It was work of grace. Lord, we thank you that you are in the saving business. Because there was a day that we needed to be saved. And you intervened for us. We thank you God for your grace and your mercy. You save the good and the bad. Because in reality the scripture says there are none who are good. None who is righteous. Lord we pray that you might work in saving someone here today. Lord, help us also to see that you not only saved Paul from something, but for something. You called him to your purposes. And I fear that there's a great weakness in us in this regard. 
Help us to see that you've saved us for a reason. Lord, the Bible says this world is passing away, but what we do for you remains. And so may our lives be daily about the calling that you've given to us. And may we be reminded that the Bible says that our labor for the Lord is never in vain. Help our lives to count. Help us not to waste our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to invite you this morning to listen to the words of Dr. Kenneth Gangle. He's a professor at uh, Toccoa Falls College down in Georgia. And uh, these words come from his commentary on the book of Acts as he introduces Acts chapter 9. I read his introduction and his testimony about his own call to the ministry. And I thought, you know, those are, those are some pretty significant words that we need to hear and we need to be reminded of. Now, it's a bit of a lengthy testimony, but nonetheless, I, again, I think it's some powerful words. Listen to what Dr. Kangle says. He says, Christians today appear to me to have a less developed sense of God's call. A less developed sense of God's call. My experience as a college student may have made me overly sensitive to this, and I certainly have no intention of reading my encounter with God into the lives of my students. I'd been a believer for most of my life, having placed faith in Christ at the age of six. That conversion, though quite real and definitive, had very little impact on day-to-day living throughout childhood, high school, And even into the first two years of college at a very outstanding school. God often uses some kind of vehicle in a divine call. But unlike Moses, mine was no burning bush event. Because of my interest and involvement in music, I was privileged after my sophomore year in college to travel in Europe with a male quartet from the college. Participating in three services a day in evangelistic tent campaigns around southern Germany, I became aware of a growing sense of confidence and joy in serving the Lord. Only after I returned from my junior year at college did I experience what somebody might call a genuine call. Sitting in a Sunday morning worship service at a small church in central Indiana that September, I felt in my heart that God wanted me on church platforms instead of in church pews. Proclaiming His Word in some way rather than simply listening to others do the same. No bells and whistles rang forth, no voices in the night, no chills or thrills while praying. Just an inner confidence that God had laid his hand on me for some kind of ministry. Not until six years later did God thrust me into what has become my life's work in theological education. Not a dramatic story, hardly paralleling the experience of Saul on the Damascus Road. For one thing, he was called to salvation, then almost immediately to service. 
Furthermore, in his life we see a full-trained adult already practicing a religious vocation. The point of these paragraphs is not a favorable comparison between my meager experience and the drama of Acts 9, but an emphasis on the genuine biblical fact that God calls people both to salvation and to service. We can go back as far as Genesis 12 to find God's specific call to Abraham, focusing on both geography and a covenant promise. Then the Old Testament characters line up so fast that we can hardly count them. Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, Elisha, and most of the prophets. In the New Testament, God called Mary to bear Jesus. Jesus handpicked his disciples. And now in this chapter, we come to one of the most dramatic calls in the biblical record. And Romans 11.29 reminds us that God's gifts and His call are irrevocable. A biblical sense of vocation cannot be limited to the formal public ministry. God calls some Christian teachers to serve in public education. Others in private Christian schools. Businessmen have repeatedly testified that God called them to be successful in business and use their money and influence to advance the cause of Christ in the world. Young mothers may sense God's call to quit a job and stay home to raise a new baby. The form of the call is unimportant. A sovereign God surely reserves to himself the right to contact any of us As he chooses. An awareness of the call however. A sense of Christian vocation. Must be present for effective and godly living. Folks aren't you glad that God is in the business of taking very unlikely people. And calling them into his service. Paul, remember, said to the Corinthians, not many noble among you, not many wise, not many important are called, but God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the wise. Now, why does God do that? Why does God call ordinary, normal, everyday people into service? It's so that nobody can stand back and say, look at him or look at her. After all, look at what they were already. Rather, he calls the ordinary so everybody looks at God and says, what a great God that we serve. And all the glory goes to God. Now folks, as we look at Acts chapter 9, we see that that's what... Paul's conversion was all about. God intervened in Paul's life before he deserved it. In fact, he deserved death, but he got God's grace. Somebody has defined grace as being God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a good definition. Acts chapter 9 is full of the grace of God. It is the story of the grace and the purposes of God. And it shows how God's purposes reign supreme in the world. 
Now this chapter has been called one of those watershed passages in the New Testament. In fact, the eminent New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce says we cannot even begin to imagine the spread of Christianity in the Roman world apart from the conversion of the Apostle Paul. It's been said no other single event in the New Testament apart from the story of Jesus itself is more important to the ongoing of God's kingdom than the conversion of Paul. William Barclay calls it the most famous conversion story in all of human history. Now to show us how important this conversion story is, the Bible tells us about it at least three different times. Luke tells us about it here in chapter 9. Then Paul himself is going to tell us about it in Acts chapters 22 and 26. It just goes to show the importance that the Bible attaches to the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And it shows us the importance that Luke, as he was writing the book of Acts, attached to it. And yet as the story opens, look at Paul. He is like a madman. He's he's breathing out threats against the disciples, against the early church. And the Greek word that is used of breathing out threats is very significant. It was a a word used in ancient times uh, of when they they would pin up a violent animal in a cage. And that animal would be pawing and scratching and and it would be growling and breathing in and out almost in a violent nature. That is how Paul here is being described as the chapter opens. But before the end we see what happens to him. Now folks it just goes to show us never give up on anybody. Never quit praying for anybody. God can save anybody. You might be praying for a loved one right now who is lost and you've been praying for them five, six, seven years and to date you've seen absolutely nothing happen in their lives and you're beginning to get discouraged. But I think this story says keep praying and keep trusting. God can reach anybody in any condition. Now as we look at this story, it is the testimony of somebody going from rags to riches. And it's your story and it's my story. The details in the drama are different, but the storyline, the principles are one and the same. We've all gone from rags to riches, spiritually speaking. Now the first thing I want you to notice with me this morning is the road of rebellion. In verses 1 and 2, Luke writes, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul was certainly a man on the road of rebellion. In fact, in his dealings with the first Christians, it's hard to find a more unsavory character. Paul seems to be going from bad to worse. At the end of chapter 7 and and beginning chapter 8, we meet Paul for the first time. The Bible says that he was present at the stoning of Stephen. 
And so he was an onlooker to evil. And then chapter 7 verse 58 tells us that the ones casting stones at Stephen laid their outer garments at Saul's feet. And so in chapter 7, Paul is an onlooker. He's on the sidelines. And then beginning in chapter 8, it says uh, Saul was consenting unto his death. And so he's gone now from what somebody might call an innocent bystander or an onlooker to somebody who is consenting to what is being done to Stephen. And then picking up in verse 8, we read that Saul has become an active participant in evil. And so it's pretty clear to us the way that Luke is setting this whole thing up. Luke is wanting us to see the downward spiral in this man who is on the road to rebellion, how he is going from bad to worse. And isn't that true of our lives so many times? When we're walking in disobedience to God, when we're walking in rebellion to God, so oftentimes we just start going from bad to worse. And our choices and our actions uh, grow worse maybe month by month and year by year. And pretty soon we find ourselves far away from God and we might even wake up one day and wonder how we got there. That's the type of man that Saul is at this point. Going from bad to worse. And by the time we meet Saul in Acts chapter 9, he's somebody who's almost out of control. Craig Blumberg in his book entitled From Pentecost to Patmos has an interesting tidbit of information. He writes, and I quote, Most likely Saul was convinced that this quote-unquote apostate group of followers of Jesus was preventing God from blessing the Jews and ushering in the Messianic age. And so Saul would have considered the extermination of the early Christians to have been God's will. As N.T. Wright alludes to, Saul would not have been that much different in regards from these modern day terrorists who many of their actions, what they're doing, somehow or another they've convinced themselves that they're doing God a favor and they're doing the will of God by killing other people. That's pretty much the way Saul was at this point. Now folks, you may find it very difficult to relate to Saul at this point. But nonetheless, you and I need to wake up to the fact that what's going on with him, though to a lesser degree, has been true of all of us in our lives. We've been on the road to rebellion. The Bible says we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has lived our lives in rebellion to God. We have committed sins of omission and sins of commission. Sins of omission are those things that we should have done but we didn't do. We knew we ought to have done them but we chose not to. We fell short of the glory of God. And then sins of transgression where we take false steps, where we break the law of God. And we are all guilty of doing this. Now on the surface it might seem to us that we're not as guilty of others. But the Bible reminds us that if you and I break the commands of God even at one point, we have sinned against the whole. 
And so all of us have been in the condition that Saul was in. He was on the road to rebellion and I've been on the road to rebellion in my life and so have you. You know, social engineers want to try to explain everything away and say it's just a person's environment. And yes, environment does matter. But that can't explain everything about human nature. We look at the world around us and we scratch our heads and we wonder why are some people doing what they're doing? Why are some people making the choices that they're making? Why is the world in the shape that it's in today? And folks, we have to conclude exactly what God's Word concludes. The verdict of God's Word is we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And you know, you can clean somebody up and put them in a different environment. You can put a three-piece suit on a pig and invite a pig into your house, but you turn your back on him and he's going to go out the door and he's going to find a puddle of mud and begin wallowing around in that again. Why? Because he's a pig. That's his nature. Every one of us have a sin nature. And until we're honest with God about that, Nothing's going to happen. You see, we've got to agree with God about our condition. I think of those two characters in Jesus' story about the publican and the Pharisee. The Pharisee went into the temple to pray, and basically the Bible says he prayed to himself, and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy over there. I do this, and I do that, and I do this. And the Bible says the publican would not even lift his eyes up to God. But he hung his head and he beat his breast and he said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And the scripture says he's the one who went back to his home justified in the sight of God. You see, we've got to be honest with God. We've got to be honest with what God's word says about human nature. And that's why in the book of Romans, before Paul ever gets to an exposition of the good news of the gospel, he points out the bad news. Because only as we understand the bad news and how bad the bad news really is and that we're guilty, only then can we really appreciate the good news and what God has done for us in Christ. And it also shows something else that that it's not a matter of religion. Paul was a religious man. I'm sure many of his contemporaries would have uh, considered him a good rabbi. He was advancing in the ranks among the rabbis. And yet he was on the road to rebellion. And that tells us that you and I don't have to be out there in the world today doing all kinds of bad things to be on the road to rebellion. You know what? You can be in church every week and still be on the road to rebellion and not know God. Do you realize that? I mean, that was my story for 19 years. We can be good. We can be religious. And be on the road to rebellion and not be right with God and not have peace with God and not be reconciled to God. And that's exactly where the Apostle Paul was at this point. 
And again, it shows us it's not a matter of religion because religion tries to clean somebody up from the outside in and that'll never work because again, they'll just sooner or later go back to their old nature. Conversion though changes a man from the inside out. God changes his heart. God takes out the heart of stone and gives the man a heart of flesh. That's called being born again, being born from above. That was Saul's need. And that's your need and that's my need. Now think a moment about Paul and God's grace. God could have engineered Paul's death. Because the church was very young at this point. It it was like a new sprout. And if you've got a new sprout, a new plant, you know it needs TLC. God's church was young. It was like a new sprout. It didn't need the kind of harsh treatment that that Saul was doing. It needed tender, loving care. You know, if you've got a 16 or a 17-year-old waking you up in the middle of the night, you're going to be pretty mad about it. But if you've got a newborn infant waking you up in the middle of the night, you're not mad. You understand because that's how newborns are. They need tender, loving care. And that's how the church was at this point. It needed tender, loving care. It didn't need somebody like Saul coming along and doing what he was doing. And so God could have taken him out of the picture. But God didn't do that because God loved Saul and he had a plan for him. Aren't you glad God loves sinners and God has a plan for us? Aren't you glad that God doesn't turn his back on us? That shows something about God's love for sinners. Well, it it wasn't enough for Saul to persecute Christians in Jerusalem. When they scattered, what did Saul do? He went right there to find them. Verses 1 and 2 says that he went to Damascus. Damascus was one of the oldest, most beautiful cities in all of the world. It's in modern-day Syria. It's about 160 miles northeast of Jerusalem. By foot, it's a six-day journey. And so what does Saul do? Saul goes to Caiaphas, the high priest, and he asks for letters of authority that he can go up to the synagogue there in Damascus and bring the other Christians back and either put them to death or put them in prison. Now the high priest was able to issue those letters of authority. Being the high priest, he had authority over synagogues everywhere. Synagogues were not like the temple. The temple was where all the sacrifice was done there in Jerusalem. But the synagogues were teaching outposts of the temple. They were like little discipleship stations. And wherever Jews lived, in fact, if there were ten adult Jewish males, they could build a synagogue in that city. And so synagogues were all over the Roman Empire back then and the high priest in Jerusalem had authority over all of them and we know that the Bible tells us in the book of Acts the Christians were still going to the synagogues and worshiping at this early date and so he knew that by going to the synagogue he could find out who all the Christians were and he could drag them back to Jerusalem and then arrest them. Folks, here we see a man on the road to rebellion. A man who's out of touch with what God's doing. 
He's full of hate. He's full of bitterness. He's going his own direction in life. And I wonder if that describes somebody here today. Again, I'm not even beginning to suggest that you're doing some of the things in your life that Saul was doing in his life. But this morning, if you were to take an honest assessment of yourself, if you were to take a good, honest look at your life in a mirror, would you have to conclude that you're a man or a woman or a young person on the road to rebellion? The second thing this morning, I want you to notice with me the road of repentance. The road of repentance. In verse 3 it says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. There was Saul getting closer and closer to Damascus. There's a great deal of anticipation in this story. You can sense the concern, maybe even the fear of all the disciples there in Damascus because from verse 14 we're told that they knew Saul was coming after them. One writer says the news of Saul's coming had arrived in Damascus before him and the little flock of Christ was praying that if it were possible the progress of the wolf who was on his way to spoil the fold might be arrested. Nearer and nearer he drew. He had reached the last stage of his journey and at the sight of the place which contained his victims his appetite grew keener for the prey. But the good shepherd had heard the cries of his trembling flock and went forth to face the wolf on their behalf. God intervenes. God takes the initiative in every way. Look at what verse 3 says. There's Saul on that road to rebellion. He's going along and verse 3 says, right in the midst of his journey there, God stops him dead in his tracks and he sees that light from heaven and and he hears that voice, that voice crying out to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 25 when Jesus said, what you do to one of the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me. And so by persecuting disciples, Saul was persecuting Jesus. Saul's response was to ask for the identity of the speaker. Verse 5, he says, who are you, Lord? In other words, what's clear to see here is that God has finally gotten Saul's attention and Saul is ready to listen. He wants to know the identity of this voice from heaven. He's he's ready to listen and do whatever he needs to do at this point. You know what that's called? That's called repentance. Repentance is when we're going along one direction in rebellion against God and God gets our attention 
may be subtle, may be dramatic. And God turns us around and we go in a new direction. And now we're ready to say, Lord, here am I, send me. What do you want me to do? What's your plan for my life? That's repentance. And when we repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says we become a new creation in Christ. All things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. Folks, Acts chapter 9 is where the Apostle Paul first became the Apostle Paul, where he became a new man in Christ. He's gone from somebody who was a rebel on the road against God to now he's on the road traveling with God. He's a new man. Verse 9 says for three days he, he didn't see anything and he neither ate nor drank. You have to wonder if his whole life and what he had been about had to have been flashing before his eyes. You remember that when you first came to Christ. You probably took a little bit of time to think, man, what have I been doing in my life? My life has been such a waste. What has my life been about? I thought I was going in the right direction, but I see so clearly now that I've been going in the wrong direction. Your whole life just kind of passes in front of your eyes when you understand where you have been and what God has now done in your life. Now most people think it's at this point that Saul takes on the new name Paul. Actually, that doesn't happen until chapter 13. And in chapter 13, the Holy Spirit still refers to him as Saul. You see, Saul was his Hebrew name. Roman citizens had typically three names. Paul would have been one of his Roman names. We don't know which one. It would have been one of his Roman names. Saul was his Hebrew name. In chapter 13, he starts being referred to as Paul. And that's significant by going by his Roman name because God's plan, God's going to use him as the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he switches from a Hebrew name to a Gentile name signifying what's going to be the purpose of his life. But I want you to think again with me about Saul's conversion here. One writer in his commentary says, Paul's conversion is sometimes described as a typical biblical conversion. But it has many atypical features. It was triggered by a post-resurrection appearance of Christ. It was a sudden turnaround in direction with no evidence that he had been moving toward Christianity, as is the case with most converts. His was rather a conversion like that of C.S. Lewis who said, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Folks, the last thing Saul ever intended to do was to become a Christian. But he was, in his own words to the letter to the Philippians, he was apprehended by Jesus Christ. Jesus laid his hands on him and he changed his life. He was converted. 
As the same writer goes on to describe, there are many features of Saul's conversion that are like our conversion. What's involved in a biblical conversion? Well, first of all, conversion comes as a result of divine initiative. Paul never had qualms about admitting that he didn't have anything to do with his salvation. In fact, he described himself as the chief of sinners. He said that God had saved him to show God's patience toward other sinners. But he gave all the credit to God. It was God's initiative. Like it or not, the same was true of you and me when we were saved. You see, the Bible points out that when we start seeking the Lord, it's because he's already been seeking us and drawing us to himself. Jesus said, no one can come to me, uh, John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless my Father's Spirit draws him. And so if you're in a process this morning of beginning to seek the Lord, it's because the Lord has already begun doing that work in your life of drawing you to himself. It's God's initiative. Second, there's a personal encounter with Christ. We all meet Jesus in different ways, but if we're converted, we have indeed met him and entered into a a personal relationship with him. Third, Paul surrendered to the lordship of Christ. Conversion at its its basic root is, is not simply a decision or a commitment, but it's when we surrender our lives and our wills. To God. Fourth, we see the importance of the body of Christ in the conversion process. Paul was baptized. He was incorporated into the body of Christ. And then he spent several days with the disciples who encouraged him and strengthened him and helped him get off to a good start. And then lastly... Though though Saul's conversion is individual, just like everybody's, it's not individualistic. In other words, we're not saved so we can sit back and just be satisfied and soak and be satisfied, but we're saved that God might use us in the body of Christ to reach others. Again, I want you to see that all of this is God's doing. You and I can't do it. Think back in your life. You didn't do it. God did it. And when he does, you're never the same again. You are a new person inside out. I want to ask you this morning, has that been your experience? As far as the dramatics involved, everybody is different. But don't get hung up on the dramatics and miss the real point. The real point is, whether it's dramatic or subtle, have you been converted? That's the real question. Has there ever been a time in my life that I've been converted? Again, good people can be lost. Religious people can be lost. Read Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter 3. He says, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. That was a prominent tribe. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. When it came to the law, I was as zealous a person as you could have found. I was blameless. 
And yet whatever was gained to me, I now count as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Good people, religious people, can be lost and need to be converted. Have I been converted? That's the question. And that's the question I want to ask you on this, on this point, the road to repentance. Has there been that time in your life that you've turned away from yourself and your sin and come to Christ and God has done that work in your heart, that work of the Spirit from above? Remember Jesus' discussion to Nicodemus, another religious man? He said, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, born from above, born of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Have you been born from above? There's some pretty important studies that have been done recently in our country. That Some very respected scholars and writers have been looking at the evangelical church in America. And as they look at the church in America, you know what some of them are concluding? When you peel away all the layers and what people mean when people say, oh, I'm a Christian. But when you start digging deeper and saying, well, what do you mean by that? And give me your testimony and your details about your conversion experience. Some of these people out there who are doing some, some pretty respectable studies are coming away and they're saying as little as 6 to 7% of the American church is truly converted, truly born again. Six to seven percent. Folks, think about that. Now I hope in churches that preach the Bible and, and preach the new birth, I hope that six to seven percent is kind of low, but that's kind of scary nonetheless, isn't it? You know what that tells me? That tells me that every Sunday morning in churches across America, there are dozens, there are hundreds, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people. There may be even dozens of people here in this crowd this morning who are religious, maybe you did all the right things at the, all the right time, but there's never been a time in your life that you've been born again. If that's the case, be honest with yourself. I think one of the greatest injustices we've done in the evangelical church today is just say to somebody, if you come forward and recite a little prayer at the end of the service in a booklet, congratulations, you're saved, your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And folks, it's not so. Have you been converted? Yes, it's important to say sinner's prayers. It's important to make our faith in Christ public. But if we're doing it just to go through some little checklist, say, I've been there and done that, now you can schedule my baptism. If nothing's happened in our hearts, we're still lost before God and we need to be reconciled to a holy God. We need to be born again. Has there ever been that time and point in your life that you've been born again, made radically new from the inside out, and you became that new creation in Christ, and God turned the light bulbs on in your mind and in your heart, and whereas one day you were cold and indifferent to the things of God, now your heart has been warmed and stirred. Has that ever taken place? Folks, we need to realize what Jesus said. Jesus said there are not very many people who are saved. 
We want to look at the world and we want to say, hey, just about everybody's going to heaven. Jesus said exactly the opposite. He said, narrow is the gate and narrow is the road. And there are very few people on it who are traveling that road to eternal life. And he said, broad is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. There's many on it. Have I been converted? I'm not trying to stir doubt in anybody. But you know, like Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he said, examine yourselves to see if you are really in the faith. I don't want anybody under my ministry month after month, year after year, to one day stand before God and God says, depart from me, I never knew you, and have that person look at me and say, Pastor, why did you never make it plain? Why did you never tell me? Going to church doesn't save anybody. Being religious doesn't save anybody. Being baptized in and of itself doesn't save anybody. Yes, we do all of the above because we've come to faith in Christ. We live a good life, a righteous life because it's the fruit of conversion. But it can't be the root of conversion. The root of conversion is only something God can do. As God's Spirit grips your heart and He does that divine surgery on you where you're born again and He saves you and He changes you. Has that been your experience? Have you been awakened to the things of God? Does your life bear the fruit of what a Christian life should bear? Now, the third thing I want you to notice that he points out here is the road of resourcefulness. Look beginning at verse 10. It says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. How much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Because God intervened, a whole new man showed up in Damascus. They were expecting a lion and a lamb showed up. They were expecting a persecutor and a preacher showed up. God had plans for Paul. His conversion was not an end in and of itself. It was only the beginning. Folks, why does God save us? God saves us to put us in His family And now that we're in his family, now that we're his child, God can use us together and individually to bring glory to God and point others to faith in Christ. God has a plan 
to use you. God saves us, then we become a resource, a vessel in His hands. And in that process, God wants to make you and me more like Jesus. Ananias goes to him, lays his hands on him. He's baptized. Should be a common experience. Baptized, verse 18. He identified with the church body, verse 19. He gave witness of his faith, verse 20. He grew, verse 22. He found out what God wanted him to do and he got busy. He takes time to learn and grow. Folks, everything changed with him. Everything. His Christology changed. What's Christology? Your doctrine of Christ. Who Jesus is. As a Jew, he rejected Jesus. Now, he's calling him Lord. His Christology changed. His soteriology changed. Soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. How somebody saved. Before, Paul would have said through the law. Now he realizes only through Jesus Christ. His eschatology changed. Coming to Christ, he realizes that now he's in that last age, that messianic age that has dawned. His ecclesiology has changed. He sees now that God is not just working in the Jews alone, but through Christ there are Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God. God's not done with the Jew yet, but now Gentiles are coming in. So his ecclesiology has changed. His Christology Soteriology, eschatology, Christology, um, uh, ecclesiology, everything about Paul's way of thinking has changed. And then verse 31 gives that statement about the church that all of the church now had rest. Folks, again, you see that he was baptized, he identified with the church. He grew and he got busy about God's work. That's why you've been saved. You've been saved so that now God can work in and through your life and my life and all of us together to be a shining light of Him in this community and beyond. And that's a call that is not always comfortable. Ananias, understandably, didn't want to go uh, to, to Paul. And God said, go anyway. He's a chosen vessel of mine. And I'm going to show him what things he's going to have to suffer for my name's sake. Folks, you and I need to realize God's not just called us to comfort, but to a cross. Is God calling you somewhere that may not be comfortable? It may be out of your comfort zone. But now that you've been saved, maybe God's tugging at your family's heart for the mission field. To go to an area of the world where you're going to have to lay everything on the line just to be there. Are you and I willing to do something like that? Are you willing to do that? 
Are we willing to suffer? Nobody today wants to even talk about that. But sometimes that's involved in the Christian life. We've got to take stands when a stand may not be popular. It may be more popular to go along with the crowd. God may call us somewhere we don't want to go. God, we don't want to do that. We don't want to go to them. We don't want, we don't want to go to that group or do that. But God calls us to himself And wherever God sends us, God will supply what we need. And the greatest peace and joy is in doing that. I've told you before for years in my... One of the things that held me back from coming to Christ until God got a hold of me one day... Somewhere deep inside I knew if I surrender and I become a Christian, God's going to call me to preach. And to me, I was just anathema. I'm not going to, I mean, that was just, it, it wasn't that it was so bad. I thought, I can't do, I, I can't even get up and speak. I was so shy. And I just, I just knew down deep inside, God wanted something. When God finally saved me and called me into the ministry, you know what? There's no greater joy, no greater satisfaction. I couldn't imagine doing anything else. God may call you out of your comfort zone. God may call somebody in this church to go somewhere in the world where you have to suffer. God called Paul to suffer. And yet in the suffering, God sustained him and gave him everything he needed. Paul ended up saying in his life, for me to live is Christ and to die is even gain. Totally new man, totally new attitude. No strings attached type of commitment. It's amazing what God did in this man's life. Reminds me of when God said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, before you were even conceived, I knew you and I had consecrated you a prophet to the nations. The sovereignty of God. Paul, here's a man who's Hebrew, he's born in Tarsus, he was Greek, and by virtue of one or both parents, he was a Roman citizen. Roman, Greek, and Hebrew, uniquely equipped to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Can you look back in your life now that you're saved? And in your upbringing, your experiences, your background, your training, everything about you, can you now see the thumbprints of God all over everything and how God was equipping you to do exactly what you're doing now? God has a marvelous way of doing that. He takes each one of us from rags to riches, from rebellion to repentance, to resourcefulness. Are you converted? Are you converted? Have you been saved? Has God gotten a hold of your heart, your soul, inside out? Did that work from above? No question about it. 
You were dead in trespasses and sins. God quickened your spirit. You're alive now to God and the things of God. That happened in your life. If it's not happened, don't, don't be ashamed. Paul was a religious man. Nicodemus was a religious man. Religious men who were lost. Nothing wrong with admitting that. The important thing is to come to that knowledge that you need a Savior, you need to be saved. Has that happened to you? Have you repented of your sins, placed your faith in Christ, become a new creation in Christ to where now you're a vessel in His hands and He can use you? Are you available? Anywhere He sends you, anything He calls you to do, at any time, no strings attached type of commitment. Does that describe your life and my life? That's what God's after. And you don't have to be afraid. And I don't have to be afraid.